Hi, and welcome to a new episode of Ethics for a Changing World. We are told repeatedly that with enough data and computational power, long-standing social problems from crime to poverty can be alleviated. The language of AI and the digital revolution, however, hides the crossed wires and the poisonous exhaust underneath the gleaming hoods of computers and data machines. These words come from a website called the AI Observatory, which aims to shed light on the use of algorithms in political and welfare decisions in India. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by its creator, Divij Joshi. We're going to be talking firstly about how algorithms are being used in India, especially talking about Aadhaar, which is the largest biometric system in the world, which is used for identification. We're going to be talking about the ongoing battle within the Indian legal system between rights-based considerations and utilitarian considerations. That is the greatest benefit for the greatest number of people in the context of the Indian legal system and the use of AI. We're then going to be talking about what tools are actually available for fighting back against the kinds of problematic deployments of automated decision-making that we're going to be talking about in an Indian context. And finally, we're going to be discussing why the Indian government keeps deploying algorithms in such a problematic way. Be sure to subscribe or leave us a like and review wherever you're listening to this podcast and share the show with anyone who might be interested. Without further ado, on with the show. Hi, Divij. Thanks for joining us today. Could you just start by telling us a little bit about your work and what you've been up to? Sure. Um, so I'm a doctoral researcher at UCL. Um, I'm at the Faculty of Laws, but my work is interdisciplinary. Um, and right now I'm looking at how platform infrastructures are created and governed in the global south, uh, specifically looking at what kind of values are implicated um, when we start relying upon platforms um, as information infrastructure, uh, and they start engaging with questions of privacy, of human rights, of discrimination, and how countries specifically outside of um, a Eurocentric or a US-centric focus um, are looking at governing these both within domestic law, um, but also at a transnational level and how geopolitics often plays out in the transnational governance um, of these platform ecosystems. Uh, in my past, I've been a policy researcher. I was a Mozilla Tech Policy Fellow a couple of years ago, um, where I researched into automated decision making and the law uh, in with a focus on India specifically. Um, and subsequently, I also worked with a number of policy organizations um, doing research and advocacy around algorithmic harm um, and algorithmic accountability. That all sounds fantastic. And we, we definitely talk far too much in these conversations about the US and Western countries more generally, and there's not enough on other countries. So I'm really excited to talk more about India today. You also created the AI Observatory, which focuses on the uses of algorithms in India. Could you tell us a little bit about what the AI Observatory is and why you decided to set it up? So the AI Observatory is meant to be a, um, a resource for the interrogation of automated decision-making systems in India. Um, and the reason for this was uh, because I, I was um, very closely observing government projects in India, both at the central level and at the kind of at the level of different states. Um, and I saw that there wasn't a lot of critical 
there wasn't a critical gaze as to how these projects were being implemented and how they affected um, either legal rights or different interests that people have. Um, for example, a lot of these projects were simply mass surveillance projects put up in the guise of security. Um, in other cases, there were projects which would deny people their welfare rights um, without any kind of due procedure. So it was really unsettling, but also there wasn't a lot of conversation around it at that time. So I, the AI Observatory is basically a resource for people to investigate and understand and respond to the harms of um, automated decision making and the kind of specter of artificial intelligence and the way in which that is uh, gaining traction in India, specific to the um, to the public sector users. So the way the governments um, at different levels are using automated decision making systems, uh, which is both kind of so ADMS in this context kind of refers both to the technical constructs, the kind of softwares, the kinds of uh, systems that are being used, but also to their, uh, you know, it, it, it kind of points to the fact that they're embedded within particular kinds of political economies, um, embedded within particular kind of organizational and institutional contexts, which are also important to keep in mind. Yeah, that that's really interesting. And I would really advise anyone who's interested to take a look at the AI Observatory website because it's got a huge amount of detail on specific uses of AI and algorithms and decision making going back several years in India. And the level of detail there is really impressive. I just wondered how you get that kind of information. Like, is it is it publicly available data? Yes. So all the information. And so I think I've tracked about uh, 75 different applications of ADMS in India, um, most of which are still kind of, you know, they're live projects, so to say. Um, the information was gathered kind of the data gathering method was not very scientific as such. Um, I had a lot of conversations with different people working in these fields. So uh, bureaucrats who are implementing these projects, activists and advocates who are kind of trying to fight or, or trying to understand them and fight against um, the impacts of these projects, even though often the focus is not so much on this on the technological system. Um, and, uh, you know, journalists who are investigating these and so on. So um, all the information is publicly available and where I where I was able to have actually linked to it. Um, so if you go to the database, you can see, for example, um, you can see manuals of the technologies which the companies themselves have put out, which describe how it's going to be used. Uh, you can see newspaper clippings which describe, um, you know, different components of a project or different ways in which they've kind of had an impact on individuals or on, on particular groups. Um, yeah. So that was kind of, yeah, it, it was a bit of a mixed methods bag of obtaining the data, uh, but largely, I mean, it, 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 it's all kind of um, open um, open intelligence or like, yeah, kind of like an authent project almost. So the Indian government is reasonably transparent. Well, it's, it's not going out of its way to hide these things, we might say. Actually, no, um, the Indian government's not forthcoming about this at all. It's kind of more that... Um, these leaks happen unintentionally about information about these projects um, in, in many cases because the government uh, doesn't understand the consequences of these of this information or, or in some cases the private companies um, are more than happy to give information about it uh, because it, it kind of props their brand up. Um, but I've also tried doing this investigation through freedom of information or as it's called in India, 
right to information um, access requests. Uh, but that in, in some cases I managed to get very little information, but in most cases I was stonewalled um, and uh, my requests were denied on various flimsy grounds. So government opacity is still a very, very big problem in how we are able to access information about this. So um, most of it is therefore not directly ob obtained, but kind of observational information from um, outside of the government. You mentioned that some of this comes from newspapers. How aware do you think people in India are in general about the way that algorithms are being deployed in decision making? Um, not very, honestly. I, I feel like there is a kind of a general understanding, um, especially amongst people who are affected by these technologies, um, that there are kind of new bureaucratic systems in place that are affecting them. But uh, the ways in which surveillance and algorithmic, um, you know, complex and dynamic algorithmic systems um, are utilized, they're very, very difficult for people to understand what's going on about them. Um, you know, you could be walking in a public space and be tracked by a facial recognition camera or some kind of, you know, emotion recognition camera, which is kind of all the rage nowadays um, in law enforcement. Um, you could be using social media, um, but the government is actually, or, or the government or like a credit rating agency is taking that information um, without your knowledge and then using it for some other more nefarious purposes that you're not aware of. Um, so while people might be aware that these systems do exist and um, that they're kind of increasingly in use, um, individuals who are actually impacted by this often don't know how that information is being used, how, how it's very directly um, and tangibly affecting their lives in a day-to-day -day manner, which is kind of what the point of this project was as well, to kind of make the material harms of um, automated decision-making systems more clear and more apparent to people. So we're going to talk now about probably the most well-known, certainly outside of India, the most well-known example of the use of new technologies in decision-making, which is mm -hmm. called Aadhaar. Could you tell us a little bit about what that is, firstly? Right. Um, so Aadhaar, as, as very simply, um, or at least as, as its conception, was a biometric identification system. Um, the perceived need was that... Uh, several people, I mean, millions of people in India don't have any form of identification, um, which is often a prerequisite to any interaction with the welfare state. Um, so the idea was to provide everybody with a common identifier um, through biometric means and connected with the internet. And that project kind of, I mean, that intention kind of, it, it evolved into something completely different in that it's now this massive common identifier which links several different databases and is used for all kinds of different kinds of government decision-making from um, adjudicating voting rights to adjudicating kind of how land records are held. Um, the, the law enforcement system uses it. Uh, it's used for allocating welfare. It's used for making government schemes. So it's, you know, it's now this one broad or and i would say it is infrastructural in that way in that it is now a, a system that's used across government and private parties but at its essence it is a 12 digit identification system um, a number that's granted to every individual and that, that's supposed to be a unique identifier of that individual so obviously the government having that kind of 
information about over a billion people is going to be slightly concerning and raise some issues. And there has been some pushback on that, especially in the form of legal cases. There's a particular one in 2018 where a group tried to challenge the government on this. Could you tell us a little bit about what happened there and what the court ruled? Sure. So um, with Aadhaar, and Aadhaar has kind of been around since 2009 in different, um, in you know, under different guises or in, in different phases of the project, I suppose. Um, but it became increasingly clear that there were several concerning aspects of this, um, especially when people uh, would be denied government welfare or would be denied basic rights uh, because of um, their inability to procure an Aadhaar card um, or an Aadhaar um, kind of their inability to access the Aadhaar database. Um, for for identifying themselves. Um, at the same time, there were these conversations happening around what the implications of this might be for individual privacy. Um, there were concerns that the centralization of all of this information about, bil- about almost a billion people um, would lead to mass surveillance, um, would lead to very intrusive government um, oversight into minute details about everybody's lives. Um, so there were actually two very interesting cases that then stemmed off from this. The first, and they, they both came from challenges by various citizens groups and interested parties um, to the Aadhaar system as a whole. Um, the first challenge, so when, so first Aadhaar was challenged on various, constitution, on various constitutional and legal grounds. Um, and as part of that challenge, the court had to determine um, whether a challenge to a government scheme could be sustained on the grounds of the right to privacy. And there's, of course, a very long history, and it, it would take me hours to go into detail in all of that. But essentially what happened is that this case spun off into a larger case where the court had to determine um, whether under the Indian constitution there existed a right to privacy, which because it's not explicitly mentioned there. And the court, uh, you know, this is one of the largest benches of the Indian Supreme Court ever held, um, did determine... Um, almost uh, they determined unanimously that there is a right to privacy under the constitution of India. So there is a, every individual in the right in, in India can claim um, a right to privacy as a constitutional right. Um, and then that kind of fed back into the challenge to the Aadhaar system as a whole. Um, and so the right to privacy cases did, in 2017, in 2018, the judgment on um, sorry, uh, 2016 and then 2017, um, the Aadhaar judgment came out where uh, the system was actually upheld on various grounds, um, including through an analysis of the right to privacy. Um, and that, of course, has been kind of criticized on, uh, by various people about the misapplication or, or kind of misjudgment um, of how various yeah, various rights are kind of impacted by the Aadhaar system and how it should have ultimately, you know, how the court might, might ultimately have decided. But basically, four out of five judges in that case um, upheld the Aadhaar project and said that um, essentially that the government's utilitarian need to provide welfare through this particular system overwhelms all other counter arguments about exclusion, about denial of welfare, about surveillance and privacy grounds. Um, or about even uh, non-discriminatory access to government welfare. 
Wow, that's that's a big deal that the Supreme Court ruled that utilitarian welfare needs were more significant than anything we might talk about in terms of rights to privacy, just rights, generally speaking. And what's been the long term impact of those two rulings? Like what, what's happened in India since then in terms of the use of algorithms? So it's been quite interesting um, because the larger ruling, which was kind of more on a specific constitutional question of what is the right to privacy in India and how do you, um, you know, how would you measure it as a, a as a legal right or a constitutional right? That ruling has kind of led to some interesting outcomes just about individual autonomy, individual decision making um, in different spheres. So not always in on only kind of its intersection with, you know, technological systems, um, but on individual conduct and its relationship with the government, such as the right to marry, um, the right to kind of uh, practice your religion. Um, it was, you know, really, it was used to kind of strike down a law that criminalized um, homosexuality. So that that ruling that therefore is kind of quite celebrated and has been well used and well received. There haven't there hasn't been too much of subsequent litigation around Aadhaar, although some some cases are still pending. This The uh, system itself has continued to grow. Um, there were some limitations imposed by the court uh, in 2017 in, in its judgment. But I mean, those were somewhat easily overcome. The biggest limitation, I think, was the fact that private corporations or private entities could no longer use or demand uh, um, that individuals use their Aadhaar to access their services. So it kind of became a, a, a government-only project, as opposed to what the government initially thought of as this kind of private-public collaboration. But the system is still very much um, in use. There are many different kinds of uh, uses to which it's now being put. For example, the government recently passed a legislation which would link the Aadhaar database to um, the voters database in order to basically remove uh, what the government calls um, fraudulent voters or duplicate voters through a system through an algorithmic system called deduplication, um, which in the past has had several problems. I mean, millions of people have been denied the right to vote because their names were uh, faultily removed by the deduplication algorithm using using the Aadhaar database. Um, and there are efforts on the ground, you know, there's a lot of activism are trying to resist and challenge this. Um, but yeah, I mean, it depends to be seen how successful those challenges are. And just to pick up on something you mentioned there, the the removal of fraudulent voters and uh, duplicates, as they're called, mm -hmm. there have been equivalents of that in other cases, in other countries, for example, like um, a Dutch court struck down um, a similar kind of fraud analytics system on the grounds that it violated the European Convention on Human Rights. But no such court in India has blocked those kinds of systems. How do you think about that? I mean, do you, do you think that the, do you think this is an institutional and legal problem in India about how equipped the country is to deal with the kind of challenges brought by algorithmic decision making? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, there's not been a lot of thought given to um, how algorithmic systems are being used and what their intersections are with different kinds of rights, particularly the right to equality, the right to life, um, and, and the kind of freedoms and protections that stem from those 
there was and and i i feel like some of this was also relating to the kind of arguments that were brought up or rather considered by the court in the aadhaar judgment um because there was an important claim made about non discrimination and the right to equal access to welfare um which was impeded when an algorithmic system is put in place which is inherently probabilistic and what that means is that a probabilistic system can never guarantee your rights uh, you know it's only it, it can guarantee the rights for 80% of the people or or um but it can also arbitrarily deny your rights in 20% of the cases um and that's a, that's what a lot of algorithmic systems today do um especially because, and, and especially because there are no kind of um uh, protections to fall back on such as due process um or the right to appeal such a system um they end up kind of denying you basic rights in in many different ways uh, the court unfortunately again didn't really consider these challenges um a lot of the focus of this argument was instead on questions of mass surveillance um which is of course very very important um but not as uh relevant to the question of what happens in an algorithmically mediated uh uh government and uh, or or within an algorithmically mediated technological system uh, which is used to determine different kinds of rights so that question is still very much open as to um how this you know how algorithmic technologies as a whole uh might intersect with important legal protections yeah and just just coming back to something you mentioned there which is the percentages like the probabilistic techniques part of the ruling in 2018 as i understand it was that even if those kinds of techniques were inherently exclusionary mm-hmm. that the court couldn't block uh something which uses them block a technology which affords access to social welfare on the basis that it excludes a few people could you just explain a little bit more about um what's meant by what you mean by percentages and probabilistic techniques here like maybe with an example sure so a good example of this is from aadhaar itself right where it it uses certain amounts of biometric information to feed it into an algorithm that then identifies who you are um and that biometric algorithm that biometric recognition algorithm itself is probabilistic in that how well it works depends on certain inherent individual traits of the person right so um because it uses fingerprint analysis techniques um it's been shown that fingerprint analysis works better or, or doesn't work as well on manual laborers it doesn't work as well on elderly people it doesn't work as well on you know certain kinds of like subgroups of the population um so what that means is that when claiming certain ac- when when claiming access to certain rights these subgroups within the population are inherently discriminated against or are or are at a disadvantage in other cases probabilistic algorithms uh you know could simply be that e- across different demographics they might work at say 95% of the time um but then that 5% is arbitrarily denied access to a particular right on which that system is predicated which is why therefore you know claim that probabilistic systems can always any at any time be used to adjudicate rights or to grant access to rights is is, is um quite concerning and the fact that the government that the supreme court upheld it again was incredibly concerning and they did so um because in any i mean under uh, under kind of the legal you know under this legal analysis you have to you do have to do a certain amount of kind of measuring or balancing of rights um which is known as the proportionality analysis um under indian privacy law but yeah i mean in in my opinion at least in this case 
that analysis was not properly conducted and um, the court simply kind of gave a somewhat blasé uh, utilitarian justification for saying that uh, the discrimination is warranted. In the Do you think there's an element at all here of a slightly different way of thinking about priorities? Like, as I understand it, under European law, you would almost never have anything justify violating um, fundamental rights. That that just wouldn't happen. But here there's almost a prioritization of, of something else above rights. Do you think there's just a different way of thinking about things um i mean of course there are very different uh socio-economic and political contexts but even i mean so proportionality analysis and what balancing of rights happens in every jurisdiction it's kind of ultimately about uh what priorities are concerned you know what what priorities the court is concerned with at that moment um so for example while you know a right to life might may be perhaps the only absolute right that a person can claim in every other case there is a certain amount of balancing that the court does um say where your right to freedom of movement you know intersects with someone else's right to expression or or, or you know I, I can't think of a great example right now um so that balance is always held it, it, it ultimately depends on how that balance is maintained by any court um, I can't speak so much to the European Court of Human Rights, but um, or, or kind of um, the European frameworks for human rights. Uh, but I, I suppose in this case, it was more of a question of what the court's political priorities were. And at that time, it seemed that their, their political priorities were to uphold this project because they thought that it, it was kind of imperative in securing some other kind of socioeconomic uh, rights. I don't agree with that balance, but um, th that leeway is there under, I think, you know, uh, under all kinds of rights adjudication um, that you do end up balancing different kinds of priorities and rights. And why don't you agree with that balance? Um, in this case, simply because, as I explained, these probabilistic systems are inherently arbitrary in many cases, that they're inherently discriminatory, and that I don't think a utilitarian justification is an appropriate balancing of that right. I don't know, I, I, I can't really say what that balance might have looked like. Um, and I'm sure there are scholars uh, better placed than me to actually analyze that proportionality uh, requirement under Indian law um, and how that analysis might be better conducted. Um, but simply, it, it, it simply wasn't given, like th there wasn't a lot of thought given to um, this argument by the court. It's simply the, the court's justification, and I, I have written about this as well, was simply that we cannot forego socioeconomic rights of certain, of several people on the grounds of um, discrimination against a, a small amount of people, which at, at many levels is problematic. First of all, because there was very little evidence about um, how crucial the Aadhaar technology or the Aadhaar system is in securing socioeconomic rights um, at one level and at the other level about at what you know at, at what stage can such kind of discrimination uh, be justified right so for uh, under in in indian constitutional law um, stage discrimination can be justified under very limited circumstances um, and that analysis wasn't conducted whether this was a rational circumstance under which certain subpopulations can be 
um, this, you know, actively discriminated against in this case, um, or whether uh, the kind of arbitrary decision making can be allowed um, under in, uh, under administrative law rules. And within your database, just broadly speaking, there's there's kind of three components. There's the database of what the government's actually doing. Mm -hmm. Then there's a very detailed harm analysis. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing you have are tools to fight back. Mm -hmm. um, what kind of things do you have in mind here? Yeah, so I am still working on that specific component of the observatory. Um, but what I've seen is that, and, and kind of observing the last few years of um, greater public consciousness about algorithmic harm, um, is that these systems are most successful when there are popular movements built around it, when there's more kind of citizen advocacy, um, when there is uh you know when when people know and respond um politically to these issues um so two of the things that i've worked on um are specifically the, on freedom of information as a way of countering the opacity of algorithmic systems um so how can you use and you know so many countries around the world um have some form of right to get information about different kinds of government systems including the technologies that governments use um, so how can you tactically use laws like that um, to gain more information about these systems, to make them more publicly available, and therefore increase the public consciousness of how these systems cause harm and what they do, you know. Um, even if you don't, for example, get the information, you know that the government is denying you important information and that's detrimental to kind of a, a democratic ethos. Um, and so... You know, FOI and RTI, again, something I've, I've written about is, is a really important tool um, in the arsenal of people trying to counteract algorithmic harm. Um, another is, of course, uh, strategic litigation, which also in many cases is, is a, a tool that requires a lot of political participation of different groups. It requires a particular kind of public consciousness to be built up against a technological system and um, requires different people to work together in identifying different kinds of algorithmic harm and then using it strategically um, to get something from the legal system. It, it doesn't always have to be a victory in court, um, but even the fact that a, a court acknowledges that this is a problem um, or that the public acknowledges that this is a problem because it's in court um, is a way in which you can kind of fight back against algorithmic harm. That's that's really promising to hear. So it's, it's, not, a, it's not a lost cause. Um, there's one really interesting thing, a law which came out of India a couple of years ago, which I just wanted to pick up on and get your thoughts on, which is in, so in December 2018, the Indian government passed uh, a set of rules, uh, laws about regulating online platforms. And one particular element of that is that intermediaries, so that's presumably social media platforms, are required required to deploy technology-based automated tools to proactively identify and disable unlawful information. Yeah. So, I mean, that's quite vague, but it also shows an assumption about public agencies that like automated tools, as algorithmic systems, mm -hmm. are capable of performing these kinds of complex tasks, which is something you've, you've written about yourself, that mm -hmm. it implies that they're capable of making these kinds of judgments about content online which is hard enough for humans to do but algorithms aren't very good at what kind of role would you like to see for algorithms in this kind of online space 
Um, that's a tricky one. Um, so I think specifically for when you're talking about kind of online media and content moderation, I mean, I, I think like systematically uh, the ways in which we've come to rely on different kinds of algorithmic uh, on, on, on and online media are fundamentally broken, right? Um, we cannot expect centralized platforms to capably moderate content uh, or, or capably moderate the speech of billions of people across different contexts. So there is something fundamentally broken about that. Now, what the uh, what what the kind of bandage on this breaking building is has been um, the use of automated systems to flag outrageously illegal content. Um, the EU has, of course, been the forerunner in this, but private platforms, of course, have had their own their own role in developing these. So copyright law was one of the earliest ways in which this was actualized. For example, if you know YouTube's copyright ID system, um, content ID system rather, where they basically, uh, you know, they, they, they use hashing mechanisms to identify um, similar content and then automatically take it down and flag it. Uh, and the same system is now used by almost all large social media companies to flag inappropriate or unlawful content. Um, and it goes wrong in many, many ways. And the more kind of, there are some uses of it, which are, I would say, almost non-controversial in that um, there is a particular economy built around uh, child sexual abuse imagery, which isn't perfect, but it is a step in the right direction because you have a collaboration across both the industry, but also uh, amongst um, civil society and amongst NGOs working in this field. And we all kind of also have a public consensus that in, you know, close to 100% of all cases, imagery of that nature um, is not appropriate in any context. So it can be automatically automatically flagged and taken down. Um, but in every in, in many other cases, including, for example, in terrorist and extremist speech, navigating that line about what is legal speech and what is appropriate speech um, is a question that's a, ultimately something that you have to have a democratic consensus about, or, or at least a legal consensus about it. Um, but what ends up happening is when these automated systems are in place, are, are put in place by large for-profit corporations, um, it's often their own priorities that end up shaping the kind of speech we're allowed access to. Um, and that's concerning for, I think that that's concerning for anybody uh, who thinks that, you know, a public sphere should be democratically mediated instead of mediated by large private platforms. Um, and governments have very little idea about what's going on about them as well, because these algorithmic uh, algorithms and these you know technologies are all built by and for these large public, large private platforms. So it, it's a very difficult question. I think that algorithms do have, because of this, because of the world we live in, where our online media environment is so fundamentally broken, algorithms have to have a role. Um, because there's no other way of moderating billions of kinds of extremely harmful and, you know, terrible and illegal online speech. Um, but when that happens, there are all, all these other concerns about how, you know, how online speech is mediated and what the law and, and you know, whether or not it's democratically accountable. It's been really interesting talking to you, Divij. And I just want to ask one more broader question. So we've talked about a lot of examples of kind of problematic ways that the Indian government is either implementing AI systems or in the case of the one we just talked about with social media is requiring companies to implement mm -hmm. such systems. 
there's I mean there's loads of examples. Another example I picked up on was the Aragoria Setu, which is an app which initially it was just a voluntary thing you download and lots of countries had an equivalent of this. It's it tells you if you've got a high risk of COVID, so based on who you've been exposed to, etc. Yeah. But the government eventually made it mandatory for doing lots of things like accessing public spaces, public transport, including yeah. trains and it just seems like the government's making a lot of very problematic decisions about the uses of algorithms and AI. How do you analyze that? Like, why do you think they keep making these kinds of decisions? So all of these systems are, you know, um, they're a way in which the government can expand its um ability to control and govern people. They, they are now technologies that govern um, and they are centralized technologies. They're easy to kind of, you know, if, if you look at them in kind of cybernetic terms, um, it's easy to use these systems um, like a smartphone or uh, surveillance technologies um, to govern people's lives in very minute ways. Um, at some point, test and trace systems were used, for example, uh, to mark boundaries um, around the movement of certain people, um, where if you stepped out of the boundary, um, you would be automatically flagged as violating not really a law, but violating whatever the app said, and therefore the cops would be on you. And so it, it, it's basically, a, you know, and as a lot of state surveillance is, it's a way of increasing government power and, and making it more intrusive and more kind of easier for the government to kind of sh shape your lives in different ways. And, and Arogya Setu was very much the same thing. And you could, I mean, it's not always that state power is a bad thing that uh, you need the government to do a lot of things for you and the government needs in many cases certain kinds of information or legibility about you. Um, but when it proceeds without safeguards, when it proceeds without any kind of public discussion or political discussion about what its implications might be, that's when it becomes really concerning. Um, and especially like you said in Arogya Setu, it started off simply as a voluntary test and trace mechanism um, and then grew through a series of executive notifications, you know, not not debated in parliament, but simply executive notifications um, into this larger system which mediated access to transport, public spaces, shelters and so on. And yeah, I mean, it, it is incredibly concerning that the government is thinking of technologies in these, you know, in these terms of expanding its own power over people um, instead of thinking of them in, in terms of systems that could actually be, you know, be helpful to people to navigate their own, in this case, health issues, right? Um, and, and we've seen this in other, in, in other cases where you simply, it's a decentralized system where individuals are able to kind of just access their own information and make decisions about themselves. Um, but over here, it's a centralized system where the government gets information about you and then is able to use coercive state power um, to ultimately force you to do certain things. So, yeah, I mean, and this kind of leads back to this is this is precisely what I'm trying to study is like, what are the kind of different values that end up being embedded in these infrastructures that we're creating? Um, and how what kind of values do we ultimately want shaping our digital infrastructures? On that, it's surely also true that the government can justify it can justify most things where it expands its power in terms of it's trying to improve the lives of citizens so the the biometric adhora 
it justified initially in terms of it's improving the the lives of the poor because they can now access welfare because they have some kind of identification do you th do you think some people would say you're being a little bit cynical about the government's motivations i think the the way to do this is to um and i do believe in the role of the state in kind of obviously like creating a welfare state uh and improving the lives of people um but the way to do it is to make sure that there's a system of the rule of law that protects against arbitrary um, exercise of state power right that when these systems are used or when they're created they have to be justified both by in some cases by public consensus but in in every case by um the constitutional foundations of a society um whether that's you know human rights or whether that's specific social political context contextual rights in india we have the constitution of india which is a wonderful framework um for thinking about all of these systems and the limits of state power um but unfortunately the ways in which these are happening are not with reference to any of those constitutional frameworks they're not deliberated with reference to them and they're not um created with reference to them so um what ends up happening is that you know a government can have a specific policy agenda which is unchecked by any kind of legal power um which ends up as has been in so many of these cases um harming people without any recourse or without any kind of without any redress to those harms um and so i think like in all of these cases we need to have a question we, we need to have a conversation about what i suppose digital constitutionalism looks like um how do we fundamentally think about um the values that this affects and how do we you know how do we create frameworks for having public conversations and political conversations about what kind of values we want digital infrastructure to reflect that's a really good note to end on thanks so much for joining us david it's been a really interesting conversation thanks mary Thanks for listening to another episode of Ethics for a Changing World. If you enjoyed the podcast, please be sure to leave a like and a review on Apple Podcasts or subscribe to us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and also share the show on social media. We have lots of other shows coming out and which we've already recorded which you can have a listen to. You can follow us on Twitter at Ethics Tech Pod or on Instagram at Ethics for a Changing World for more content, including a tech explainers and tech ethics roundup. So what's been going on in the world of tech regulation and in terms of new technology. Thanks for listening and I'll see you again next time.